Well, welcome. Glad you're here. My name is Robin. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Go ahead and stand with me. Every week we stand to read God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 12. There are Bibles at the end of your rows. You can grab one of those if you do not own a Bible, and then you can keep it if you want. It's not stealing if it's, if it's given to you. So, uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Hear God's Word. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, Father, we ask that you would be with us here this morning, that you would allow us to be present with you. So whatever would stand in the way of us being here right now for the next little while, we pray that you would take those things and let us find acceptance somehow to make peace with the world that we're living in so that we can hear from you the peace that you want to give to us and the peace in turn we can take out of here, conformed more to your image, compelled more by grace to live as loving people in this world. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this morning we're starting a new sermon series that I'm really excited about. Um, a matter of fact, excited doesn't even capture what I really, at the end of the day, feel about it. It's going to be something that we, it's not just one sermon series that goes for a few weeks. This is actually now a 10-month journey we're starting this morning. And, um, and it's all about Jesus. It's all about who He is, what He taught, and what does it mean for us today. And in this first series we're starting, we're calling it the, the Path of Jesus. And we're starting here in the Beatitudes, which is famously known as Sermon on the Mount. It goes to three chapters. And so we're going to actually do two series between now and the end of the year which means for six months, we're just going to stay in three chapters of the Bible. And you may feel like that we're going to run out of things to say, but here's the thing, Jesus doesn't run out of things to say. He has things that are worth mining and pining over and letting it really affect our lives. So I'd encourage you to saddle up, like to take this seriously in your own way, and maybe even spend time now along with edible scrolls that you're reading on the side, to even pour into these three chapters in, in Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7. And this morning, I, I want to start, because there's a lot of setup we have to do with this, a lot of setup we have to do with even this series 
the path of Jesus. What does it mean to be on a path with Jesus? What is this path that Jesus provided? And the challenge for us from the get-go is going to be to get behind the thing, to get to the thing without discarding the thing. Like how do we get behind the thing to get to the thing without discarding the thing? And I'll try to set it up this way. Uh, One of the perks and privileges of being a father of a little girl is that you have permission to always watch Disney movies and never feel shame. Especially princess movies, which is where my heart is. Uh, There's something about princess movies. Um, And uh, our favorite movie, uh, you can argue about this all day long, but I think the best princess movie was just released. It was called Moana. Anybody see Moana? Moana. Make way, make way. All right, no? I thought people get into that. It's a story of a a princess living on an island to a tribe, and um, she's got something in her that's pulling her a direction, and she, she, she feels the sea is calling her, the ocean's calling her, where the water meets the line in the sky, and she just can't get there. Her parents keep her back. Her father keeps her back with shame, with stories, with tradition. She sees these rocks that are piled up for hundreds of years from her forefathers, the chiefs that ran the island, but something still pulls her. And she has this crazy, kooky grandmother that tells her to keep just listening to that call of the sea, the call of the ocean, to see where it takes you. And eventually, she wanders into this cave, and she takes these sticks and beats these drums, and all of a sudden, something happens with all these boats around her, and there's a flash of a story that goes on that tells her where she came from. It tells her that the path she's really meant to walk on. And there's this beautiful, beautiful song that comes out of it that I just want to read a few words to you. It says, we read the wind and the sky when the sun is high. We sail the length of the sea on the ocean breeze. At night, we name every star. We know where we are. We know who we are. We keep in mind our island And when it's time to find home, we know the way. And about that time, every time I watch Moana, uh, we get to that part of the movie, Charlotte's already distracted going to something else, and I'm there bawling, uh, just crying. Because I'm like, I want to go home. I want that place. Yes, I want that path. And the story of Moana is this, this young princess who finds this path that she's meant to walk on. She had to, to get to the thing, she had to get behind the thing without despising the thing. It took her a journey. For me personally, my own journey has been, I, I grew up in, a, in Mississippi. Uh, I grew up in what was considered a fundy, charismatic home, fundamental, Christian, charismatic. It meant a few things. It meant that, um, that, yes, like, Jesus is the way, and yet our niched way of doing it was really the only way within our church. Um, it led me to a lot of ostracizing others around me that, you know, only if you really have this kind of second feeling of the Holy Spirit do you really know the way. And yet in that way, there wasn't even a path for me or an option for me to ask questions about the world around me. The Bible was looked at literally. You had to take everything in the Bible literally. And I was running into all these problems thinking about the Bible just literally. Like I had to think about the world a certain age, and I had to think about certain time periods, and I had to think about like a well in the Mediterranean Sea swallowing a human being. Like I'm like, I don't know about this. And then I was told to have to defend those things. 
And that lasted with me until about my mid-20s when I had my own little personal crisis of faith. And I realized, like, having that, even though that was a good part of my life, that this wasn't enough. I was searching for more, and so I came into something even called Reformed Theology, where there was a grid and a view of how to look at the world around you through the Scriptures, through certain interpretations. And it was really helpful because it taught me to not look at the Bible literally, but literarily, to look at it in ways that there are certain um, epochs in the Bible, there are certain ways the Bible is written, there's poetry, there's prophets, there's law, there's history, all those kind of things. Learning how to actually see the Bible, it, it gave me a way even to see the Bible systematically. It was beautiful, it was wonderful. But I found then there were even a lot of flat ways to deal with the world around me that just wasn't helpful. Because no matter how much information I gathered and got in my life, I still wasn't finding my heart always really changed. Like, I still had to deal with certain things. Like, it didn't give me an intuition of street smart. It gave me a real connection vertically, but I found it was really hard to find a connection horizontally. And then on top of that, I had to even figure out how do I get behind this own religion that I grew up in? I don't mean Christianity. I don't mean following Jesus. I mean how Christianity is posed, especially in the Southeast. A lot of you can relate to that, that you grew up in a religious home, that the more you read Scripture, you're finding, although there are some good things in the home, I find that it doesn't really like, it's not like my dad or my mom were like Jesus Christ, right? And, but I, I wanted to take it that way, and I wanted to take that my Southern culture was this is exactly how Scripture looks. And then you start bumping into others in the world who also call themselves followers of Jesus, and you're going, something's not working out. You have to try to get behind that. And then, of course, we all in this room can deal with, what does it mean to even try to get behind your Americanism? So much of America has been tied to, if you're American, then you're Christian. And of course, that just flies in the face of the world and over 2,000 years' worth of people who have pined and poured their lives over for the sacredness of not just Scripture, but the lifting up of Jesus' name, that didn't have inalienable rights. And so many times in the name of being American and being Christian, there are all kind of things that happen in the world that you just have to scratch your head and go, is that really what Christianity is? Now, the trick is this, though. To get to the thing behind the thing, how do you not discard the thing? So many times when we finally get behind the thing, we want to discard the thing. We want to say that where we came from is trash. What we grew up in is wrong. What we are told about life is just ridiculous. So we become cynical. We become rage-filled. But that is such a naive way to go about things. But here's the challenge. How do we get to Jesus behind everybody else that's been talking about Jesus so we can see Jesus clearly. And even now, you have someone talking to you about Jesus, so how do you, in a sense, try to get behind even me? And it's, it's a challenge. You can kind of go on these infinite loops. Even in Scripture, there's a challenge where so many times we want to read people talking about Jesus instead of reading about Jesus himself in the Gospels. But when we talk about Jesus, we only talk about what Paul said about Jesus or Peter, or one of his followers. But the challenge is actually to get to Jesus. What did Jesus have to say? Not what's my systematic theology of how I want to set him up so I feel more comfortable, because I want to tell you something. For the next 10 months, you're going to find yourself more uncomfortable. You're going to find yourself more challenged. If you aren't, you're not showing up and you're not present. You're going to find yourself more uneasy. 
You're going to find yourself asking more questions and having more answers. And I want you to know something. That's what it's like for every person who runs into Jesus. They're both uncomfortable and challenged, and yet somehow they're strangely comforted. They somehow have less answers, and they find themselves with more questions. Because that's what it's like bumping into God. You can't wrap your mind around God or explain God away ad nauseum, because when we've tried to in the church, it really makes people nauseous. The story of Jesus is one of a man who comes, he shows up in a podunk town, backwoods, what we would call like just ignorant. He shows up in a Roman world to Jewish parents whose father was a laborer. His mother had him outside of wedlock, which means he was looked at as an illegitimate child. And Jesus shows up, and he's got some things to say. He's wanting to announce something. And this thing he wants to announce is what's called good news. Good news. Good news of a new kingdom. See, the word good news, euangelion, is not unique to Christianity. It's actually something that was used regularly within the ancient Near East. That whenever a new kingdom would come into power, they would send someone to run town to town to announce the euangelion, the good news. Now, here's the thing. If you won, it was good news. If you lost, it was just new news. You know what I mean? And so they're running town to town telling this good news. So you're crossing your fingers hoping when somebody comes to announce the euangelion that it really is going to be good news. So Jesus shows up and he's got good news to share. And this word kingdom is really important because God's people know a lot about kingdoms. They're under the rule of Rome, a kingdom. Before that, they were under the rule of Babylon, a kingdom. Before that, Persia. Before that, Egypt. They've always been ruled by kingdoms with short spaces interspersed between where they got to have their own kingdom. God's people are looking for a reign and rule of God here in this world to disperse the evil and to bring forth goodness and justice, especially for them. So you only can imagine in Luke chapter 4, we'll put it on the screen, Jesus shows up in his hometown on a Sunday morning, they're at synagogue, they're having church. It's a normal thing to pull out a scroll from the prophets or the Torah. The rabbis would open up the scroll and they would read it, and then they would walk around the room dancing with the scroll, trying to encourage other people to get up and dance because this is the word of the Lord. There was excitement. Aren't you glad I don't make you stand up and dance with me when we read Scripture? They'd walk around and dance to get people into it. So you can imagine Jesus reading the scroll, and here's what He had to say. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he reads it, and he sits down, but he's not done because the mic drop is coming. And he says, today this has been fulfilled among you. And they look at him in wonder, and they also look at him in judgment, because they're like, aren't you Joseph the laborer's boy? Didn't I hire you out just a few months ago to like make some tables for me? Wait, wait, wait. Isn't your mother the local whore? Like, isn't she the one 
that like had you illegitimately and said it was from the Lord, and yet we've just been waiting 30 years to push that story under the rug? Who are you to get up in front of me and tell me the good news is here? And then to say, today it's fulfilled in your midst. And so, of course, Jesus always has a good barb to come back with. He goes, a prophet's not received in his hometown. They're like, oh, he's a prophet now. And then he goes, but wait, I'm not done. He brings up two stories, one with Elijah, one with Elisha. Elisha was Elijah's disciple. Both were prophets. There's a story he brings up that there were many widows in the land of Israel in Elijah's time, but God raised none of their sons back from the dead except for one who was outside of Israel in in an area called Sidon, which by the way, if you go back in the Old Testament and do a word search on Sidon, some of the worst things that happened to Israel happened from Sidon. They can't stand Sidon. And he says to them, God didn't raise any of the widow's sons in Israel. But through Elijah, he raised this woman's son. And then he says, and there were many with leprosy in the time of Elisha, but God healed none of them, except for one who was the commander of an army that ruled over you for years from Syria. His name was Naaman, and God healed him. And people lose their minds. They hear this, and they lose their minds, and they run him out of town, and they try to run him off a cliff. Like, they just paid him a week ago to do some work for them, and now they want to kill him. And what Jesus is saying is so extreme, so on topsy-turvy, so upside down, that they lose their mind over it. And what is that? And that is this. The kingdom you thought was for the winners, you, but the kingdom is actually for the losers, them. You thought when a Messiah came, he would win and conquer, and then you would be the winners. Let me tell you something. When the Messiah comes and there's a new kingdom installed, it's going to be for the losers, those that you would never assume, those that you would never even consider to be a part of this thing, and they can't stand it. So then we pick up in Matthew chapter 4. Look at it with me. Verse 23. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, let's break this down. Great crowds, like hundreds, maybe thousands, pick up that there's this guy doing some incredible things, and they start following him. And there's some from Galilee up north, his hometown. There's some from down south in Judea, also Jewish. There's some from the big city, the Sophisticates, right? Jerusalem. They're with him. So he's got those from the backwoods, those from down south, those from the big city. But then it says those from the Decapolis which Decapolis is a word in Greek meaning ten cities. And the Decapolis was a ten-city area in Israel, in Palestine, Israel, where they were all Greek, all pagan. And then there's those on the other side of the Jordan, all pagan. I'm not clearing my throat. I want you to hear me. Pagans along with Jews 
Those who grew up knowing about God, waiting for the redemption of Israel, waiting for a kingdom, and those who were so far away from God, they know nothing about Him. And they're all coming around, and Jesus sees them all, and He gets up, and it says, read with me here in verse 1, seeing the crowds, He went up on a mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Now stop. He sees the crowds, all of them mixed together, good religious folk and bad folk people who belong, supposedly, and people who never belong. And he sees them all, and he sits down. And Matthew is writing specifically to a Jewish audience with this gospel, meaning he's going to pull imagery from the Old Testament in ways that other writers wouldn't. When's the last time we found people gathering around a mountain to hear from God? Sinai, the book of Exodus. In Mount Sinai, God's people were in the desert. Moses huddles them all together and says, here comes God. And they all come at the foot of the mountain waiting to hear. Matthew does not want you to lose that because something is being recapitulated here. Something's being retold. He gathers all these nations together. Then look on. It says in verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Notice something. He doesn't open his mouth and say, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't say, God's told me something to tell you. He opens his mouth and then just starts teaching. Again, Matthew wants you to pull from some things. Genesis chapter 1, and God said, and thus it happened. And God said, and thus it happened. On top of that, Jesus is both Moses gathered the people and he's God himself speaking from the top of Mount Sinai bringing this new law. And Matthew's like, open your eyes. Here is God in the flesh coming to talk to you here and now. Now, let's pause in this review. Jesus has a kingdom to proclaim. He says it's good news. He tells them it's going to include people they never thought. He preaches and heals people from all over, and he opens his mouth. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you ready? Can you feel the anticipation? Can you feel the build coming? Thousands of years of history before Jesus, Jesus stepping in this moment, seizing it, having something to say, something already that's going to be somewhat offensive, somewhat interesting, hopefully compelling. And he opens his mouth, and the first thing he has to say about this kingdom that's going to bring, that's going to put away Rome, all the other kingdoms, that's going to bring God's reign and rule in this world, and here's the first thing he has to say. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? This is not how you start your inauguration. Like you get up and you talk about like kicking some tail, right? Like overpowering some people, bringing in some armies. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They've waited for thousands of years, hundreds of years, for God to come redeem them. And Jesus shows up saying, here I am at Sinai again with a message for you. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you just got to try to sit in the seat of those at that moment. Because all of a sudden, Jesus turned the tables. There were those sitting around that were Jewish going, now listen, you pagan, I want you to listen right here, okay? 
I'm not pointing to anybody in particular. I want you to listen right here. Listen listen what Jesus has to say, because we know this story. We know what happens here. And all of a sudden, Jesus, like, starts looking at this Jewish person and then turns this pagan person, and he goes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can only imagine what the anxiety, the tension that was going on at that moment. And that leads us really to three questions, right? We got to ask about this passage. The first one is this. What does he mean by poor in spirit? What is Jesus saying when he says the poor in spirit? There have been a lot of attempts over the last 2,000 years to try to identify what this means. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said that the Beatitudes are here to show us what we never can attain, what we never can live up to, and therefore never try because only by grace alone you stand is trying to reveal to you, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, reveal to you what you never can do. Okay? Others within the early Catholic Church, the church fathers especially, said that the Beatitudes are to show us what we aspire. Aspire? I don't know if that's the right word when you're saying you want to go from having something to having nothing. But what you're to aspire to. You're to aspire to be poor in life. Both of those, I would submit, are just ridiculous. Both of those miss the mark, because Jesus is trying to speak literally here to a people that are right in front of Him. See, He's trying to speak to a people right in front of Him, and He says, blessed are those who don't have it together economically that are living day-to-day on the streets. Blessed are those who do not have it together economically. Blessed are those literally on the streets right now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But also, the fact that he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, you see, in Luke chapter 6 with the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. We know he's talking about literally people who are poor. But then when Matthew says poor in spirit, he's also trying to say, not blessed are those who are so sinful that they just need grace. He's not saying that. That, that's not, that isn't how Jesus spoke. That's how others spoke about him afterwards. What Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who are so beat down by life that they have nowhere else to go, that they can't fend for themselves. Or Simon and Garfunkel said, blessed are the sat upon, spatted on, and ratted on. Blessed are those who are sat on, spatted on, and ratted on. Are you getting uncomfortable yet? Because Jesus is saying, those people the kingdom is theirs. And what he says to them is, as one writer put it, the God bless you to people in God-awful situations. Like he's given God bless you to people who are in God-awful situations. What are these people? People who are homeless, people who are addicted and they can't get out of those cycles, people who are shamefully divorced people who are in prison, people with special needs, people abused, people bullied, losers, underdogs, the underprivileged, and the forgotten. Blessed are those who are beat down by life and could never get themselves out of that situation for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Scott McKnight said, the poor in spirit describes an economically, physically impoverished or oppressed person who recognizes her or his need. 
See, the poor in spirit is a list of lasts. It's the last person to be seen. It's the last person to cross the line. It's the last person to be comforted. It's the last person to find peace. It's the last one to get their crap together. It's the last one to get to eat. The last, the last, the last, the least, the least, the least. And Jesus shows up and says, you all that are the last and the least, the sad on, the spat on, and the ratted on, this kingdom's for you. People didn't know what to do with that, just like we don't really know what to do with that. We want to hyper-spiritualize this, make it into a place we have to like try to get to. You, Jesus isn't encouraging you to get to a poor place, like to become literally poor. Then if I become poor in life, literally, and impoverished, then I'll know God. No, no, no. He's just making a statement, a proclamation, that these people who have nothing to live for in life, they keep trying to find a reason to live every day, this kingdom is for them. He's not saying, get yourself poor. What he is saying is, those who find themselves poor, the kingdom is near them. Now, the second question is this, what does it mean that the kingdom is theirs? To answer this, we need to first see how people saw the world at this time. At this time in history, the world worked in a very binary way. It's very simple. If good things happen to you, that means that God smiled upon you and favored you. If bad things happen to you, it means the gods were against you. Pretty simple. So like for example, in John chapter 9, there's a story of a blind man, and the disciples are with Jesus. And the first question they ask Jesus when they see this blind man was this, Jesus, who sinned, this man's father or this man's mother? Now what's implied in that question is this. Somebody somewhere must have done something bad for this guy to have this. Now that may sound far-fetched to you, but is it, like, is it really that different from today? Let me give you a few lines and see if these sound familiar. Well, he probably deserves it because he got hooked on drugs and everything. Well. She probably had plenty of chances, just like me in life, and made bad decisions over and over. Or how about this one? We all know this one. You reap what you sow. We just don't connect God in the way that they did to it. But we still believe that those who try hard and work hard get what they deserve in life, and somehow they're making the right decisions. And that those who are on the street those who are impoverished, those who are dealing with addictions in life, well, you know, they had their chances. And Jesus looks at that time and again in the Gospels, and He just is like, are you kidding me? Like, that's the way you're dealing with the world around you? Let me tell you something. That's not how the world works in my economy and my kingdom. Because in my kingdom, it's those who are poor and poor in spirit that are going to have the most intuition of getting this thing of being a part of this reign of God in this world, even more intuitively. Again, Scott McKnight, I think, says it well. Those who are poor now, who nonetheless trust in God and wait for God's Messiah with faithfulness, are and will be the ones who populate God's kingdom. The Beatitudes of Jesus are nothing short of a revolution of evaluation. That phrase, 
a revolution of evaluation. How do you evaluate the world around you today? Like, how do you see the winners and losers today? I think it's the line in the grocery store with all the magazines that kind of dictate that for us, right? Like, winners are those who stay really fit, have a good waistline, they have plenty of hair, I'm already out of that race, but I do have my new J's. All right. <laughs> but those who have gotten the degrees, those who've acclimated plenty of life, those who have a good 401k, those who save, 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 those who go out and really enjoy culture, they know all the hot spots, they can tell you in ad nauseum ways, they're all their reviews around the city on everything. Those who have it together. That there's an evaluation we have of the world. But Jesus shows up and says, all those ways you're trying to interact with the world around you, that you're evaluating the world around you of what's up and what's down, I want you to know something. If you're going to ride with me, right, if you're going to do what I'm doing, if you're going to be part of this realm that I'm creating, you've got to have a revolution of evaluation. You're going to have to start holding things open-handed in your life and recognizing it's the person in your family, and you know who it is, who can't kick the bottle and has lost everything in life, Jesus is like, you better start watching that person, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're a lot closer to this whole realm than what you realize, and maybe even you. That person that you give one look at at the corner of whatever street, name anyone here in Memphis, and it's too uncomfortable for you, and all of a sudden you create a whole narrative about their life, about why they got there and the decisions they made and how if they just would have done better and if I give them a couple of dollars, that'll be it and I'll move on. Jesus is like, pay attention because that person belongs in this thing I'm doing. Yeah, there's no amens to this, and I get it. I'm not asking for one. But do you just see the tension? Do you, can you just feel the uncomfortability of this? The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the first thing he has to say is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But here's the last thing we need to consider. What in the world does blessed mean? Blessed are you. Listen, there are all kind of things Jesus could have said to start off this statement. Instead of blessed are the poor in spirit. He could have said forgiven, that would have been a great word. Forgiven are the poor in spirit. Yeah, you're forgiven for all the stupid decisions you've made. He could have easily said honored. All right, yeah, the last will be first, the first will be last, I get that. Or maybe given another chance, or maybe even accepted. But the word Jesus used is blessed, and that's what the Beatitudes are, the blessings of Jesus. Put a slide up here. The word for blessed, it, it happens a few times in the New Testament. It's the word makarios. And it's more than just simply saying, like, like, life is good. Life is happy. It's not it. There's a few ways you could talk about this. One is Jesus is saying, because this word, you know, conceptually, this, it's really hard to find sometimes all the words. He's saying, fortunate, fortunate are you. For I am with you, and God is on your side. Fortunate are you, for I am with you, and God is on your side. 
He's saying, blessed are you, fortunate are you. What? Fortunate am I? Why? For I am with you, and God is on your side. Blessed. Dallas Willard said, those poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they are in a meritorious condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their ever so deplorable condition, the rule of the heavens has moved redemptively upon and through them by the grace of Christ. Come on, that's good news. But it may not always be good news for you, but it's good news for those who aren't in this room. And that's what the kingdom is also about. Not everything has to be a high five and to jack you up and get you all spiritually high. There are things here in Scripture that are for those who are the least of these, the least of us, the sat on, spatted on, and ratted on. And Jesus says, this is my kingdom. There's even another part to this that's really interesting, a part that you have to kind of really search for and pull out in the Greek. Because it's not just a condition here and now, it's also something that they just have innately in them that others don't. That he's almost saying in this word, this idea of blessed makarios, is that people who are this way, they get it faster. Like they get it. Like people who are this way, like, are kind of like more advanced more evolved, if you will. Bear with me here. How many of you like M. Night Shyamalan, or at least you did 10 years ago? Fantastic, okay. There's a reason why you need to now. I won't shit on you, but I'll just say you're missing out. And I'm actually gonna spoil his new movie for you. You've had time, I'm sorry. So there's a new movie called Split. Anybody seen Split? Not enough of us. Okay, so Split is this kind of like thriller, almost horror movie. I'm not, okay, so don't watch it. But it's like this movie, that um, deals with a character who has split personalities. Matter of fact, he has 23. 23 split personalities. And the movie is about mental health at the end of the day. It's about those who deal with mental health. Those who find themselves constantly dealing with the voices in their head. The pull, the direction, the brokenness of life they find themselves in time and again. And that throughout the movie, the main character in this movie split is saying the 24th is coming, the 24th is coming, and everybody freaks out because the 24th is going to be the most evolved human being you've ever met, that, that even though humans interact with 10% of their brain, this 24th personality is going to interact with 100% of their brain. They're going to be able to do things that no one else would do, but they're also going to interact in ways that you actually don't want to be around. It's going to be the most broken of the most broken. And there's a scene in the movie where the 24th is chasing the main protagonist, this girl, down in these hallways. She finds an old, like, little jail cell that he's used for a prison, and she locks herself in there, and he's reaching for her, but all of a sudden he sees the cuts on her arm, and he sees that she has a story as well. And he looks at her and stops, and he says, the broken are the evolved that the most broken are the most evolved. And of course, Knight's point in this is that until you really embrace how broken you are, you'll never be able to really kind of get it and get to it. If you keep trying to run away from the things that have made you who you are and your stories, you'll never fully get it. 
you're going to miss out on some things. You see, those who are living on the streets and those who are abused and those who deal with lots of addictions and those who fill the list out and on and on and on, they have nowhere else to go. They have nothing else to hold on to. And Jesus is saying, you get it. Yours is the kingdom here and now. You don't have to wait for something because you realize need and you realize want and you realize desire and you realize humility through humiliation. You get it. Blessed are you because you're the evolved. You're the ones that get it. So here's the question. What do we do with that? Like, what do we do with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the reign and rule of God, where he comes to bring shalom and peace and make all things new? What do we do with that? Two things. First is this, I would say. Pay attention to these people and be willing to see them through Jesus' eyes. So much of life we miss out on because we just don't pay attention. We think we got the answers and we know how it works, and we're so involved in our own lives of how it's supposed to look and work, and we just miss out on God every day. There's God, and there's God, and there's God. There's what He's doing. But we get so immersed in our own selves, and I don't mean your own heart and feelings, because that's important. You see, the point of you having your own feelings in life is so you can be present with others. But when you spend your whole life running away from who you are and what's happening inside of you, you have to deny everything else around you. You can't pay attention. And Jesus is saying, pay attention. Just look at those around you. This is what God's reign and rule looks like on earth. Pay attention. These people are the most evolved for receiving me and living in my kingdom. Pay attention. Not you, them. Our privilege, our progress, our knowledge, our know-hows and to-dos, they actually keep us from the kingdom. Our desire to get it right, climb the ladder, put others on a ladder below us or above us, it keeps us from the kingdom. And Jesus is like, just pay attention. If you want to learn the kingdom, watch. Which, guess what that's going to do? It's going to move you towards others. Those you never thought, if you've never spent time with the person who is literally poor in life, the person who is so broken and beaten down in life, you are missing out on the kingdom. Not because you're doing a good thing for them. Guess what, guys? They're doing a good thing for you. Would you ever even consider that? It's wild for me as well that someone who has nothing can get nowhere, actually has more for me than I have for them. They're somehow blessed. They get it. Like, why don't you try being discipled? <laughs> sounds crazy. Why don't you just try being discipled by someone who lives on the street? I know that sounds crazy. It's like, can you imagine going to somebody and being like, hey, I, 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 like, I know you live on the street. Like, I know you got nothing going on for you. Can you teach me about life? What? Yeah, yours is the kingdom. And can you imagine what good news that is to a person who has nothing in life? 
Yours is the kingdom. See, here's what Jesus is saying, that you always belong before you believe. We think belief helps us to belong. Jesus is saying before a person ever believes anything, they belong. That does not line up with a lot of our theology, I know. But that's what Jesus is about. He's not interested in fences. He's interested in building wells. He's not interested in deciding who's in or out. He's interested in going deep and saying, now, come and drink from this. And everybody who wants to put up a fence, just back off for a minute. Watch, learn. Because the kingdom is theirs. The second thing I would say is this. Be open to this in your own life. Be open to this in your own life. Okay, a couple of things. Just like the Bible isn't saying this, that if you're rich, you have God's favor, and if you're poor, you don't have God's favor. Just like the Bible is not saying that, Jesus is not saying that if you're rich, you can't have the kingdom, and if you're poor, you only have the kingdom. That's not what God's doing. That's our own binary way of trying to win discussions, of pitting each other against ourselves, ourselves against others. If you are well off, the kingdom is still yours, but listen. Here's what Jesus has to say about that to the rich young ruler in Mark 10. It'll be easier for a camel to go through a very small door that only small children can get through, the eye of a needle, than it will be for someone who is wealthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he doesn't mean getting to heaven. What he means is interacting with heaven on earth. By the way, people in the ancient Near East who were Jewish weren't thinking about getting out of this world. They were thinking about everlasting life here and now, bringing as much heaven and God's reign and rule here and now. So what he's saying is, if you're rich, privileged, come from a winning place, you're a winner, not a loser, the kingdom can still be yours, it's just going to be a little bit harder for you. Because you're easily going to want to lean into how you don't have needs, that you aren't dealing with real humility, and at the end of the day, you've got a comfy place to go and lay your head down. So it doesn't mean make yourself poor literally in life so that you can have the kingdom. It just means this, except when God tries to bring a poor in spirit reality to your life. Like I know you just lost a job, and I know you can't quit the habit, the addiction. Like, I know you're not good enough and you don't line up. I know you don't belong a lot of places. I know you see yourself as a zero, as a loser. And here's what Jesus, I think, could be saying to us. Just don't deny that. Maybe life isn't always about you being victorious in Christ and winning and crushing it. Maybe life's about accepting who you are, where you came from not trying to get away from all the the fact that you're so broken and not not admitting it. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm just fine. No, you're not. You feel like a stinking loser on the inside. You have all this shame that's built up. You have a story you can't outrun. What if you just talked about it? Maybe there's more of a poor in spirit reality for you to get to have. Because those who are poor in spirit realize that they are needy, that they are in want, they have nowhere else to go. Have you ever just said this, like, I have nowhere else to go, Jesus? And here's what Jesus has to say to you when you can say that. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
Mother Teresa said, the greatest disease in the West today is not tuberculosis or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, uncared for. We can cure physical disease with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a little love. The poverty in the West, listen to this, the poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It's not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There's a hunger for love. There's a hunger for God. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Can we be a place willing to say that people can belong here before they believe? And can we be a place that says that you can meet God here, wherever you are, especially if you're poor in spirit? So we're about to pray. We're about to go into communion. And there's no other place that we get to say that we are needy and poor in spirit better than this table. Because this table only works for you if you're willing to come up here and admit how poor you really are. You don't have to become poor in spirit. You just have to let life bring that about for you. And when that happens, this table is here for you. His presence is promised to us. Let's pray. So, Father, we now come before you and your table through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we recognize that here at this table, we find a place to belong and a place to truly know and meet you. That you came declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe this thing. And yet, even when you can't fully repent and believe, the kingdom of God is still near. That the kingdom of God is for those who are poor in spirit. The sat on, spat on, and ratted on. Help us pay attention to the kingdom. Help us not miss out on the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.